0: You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. Sometimes patients needing
1: kidney transplants have to wait much longer than others because of their sensitization to human leukocyte antigen. How are new desensitization protocols opening the door to transplantation for patients who were previously ineligible? Our guest is Dr. William Goggins, Kidney Transplant Surgical Director at Indiana University Health. Dr. Goggins, welcome. Hi. Dr. Goggins, why are some patients ineligible for kidney transplant?
2: Generally, there are some issues that limit eligibility for kidney transplantation due to significant disease processes. These are things like severe cardiac disease, peripheral vascular disease, diagnosis of a malignancy that requires treatment, or a significant waiting period. Other issues can include ongoing substance abuse issues and an unwillingness to take immunosuppression on a consistent basis. Additionally, there are other issues, which are immunological issues, which can make people ineligible for a kidney transplantation, and these are related to preformed HLA antibodies. And people who have these antibodies to HLA are considered sensitized.
1: And what does that mean exactly, if in a little more detail, to be a sensitized patient?
2: Okay, well, our HLA system is made up of different markers on our cells, and everyone has a set of six major markers, and there are many minor markers which make up our own genetic code. The HLA system helps our bodies fight off infections or damages in cell replication by recognizing basically what is genetically our cells versus what is not our cells. HLA sensitization is when the body develops antibodies to these cell markers, which are not part of our own genetic code but are attributed to other other people. And this can happen from patients that receive blood transfusions or women who have had a pregnancy and uh, by prior transplants.
1: How do you determine if a patient has anti-HLA antibodies?
2: Previously we would do what's called a panel reactive test where you'd get certain standard antigens directed to HLA and then you'd take the patient's serum and you would test it against these standard panels. And for example, there'd be 50 panels and if they reacted to 40 of the panels, then 40 out of 50 is 80%, so they would be 80% PRA. Well, now we have much more sensitive ways to check for anti-HLA antibodies and we can test the patient's blood for antibodies using flow cytometry with single HLA antigen beads, and we can define specifically what patients have their antibodies directed toward, and it's a much more specific way of testing for antibodies now.
1: Can you describe in more detail why some patients
2: develop anti-HLA antibodies? Sure. Patients who develop anti-HLA antibodies have been, by definition, sensitized to have a sensitizing event. And what happens, for example, in a blood transfusion, the sensitizing event is the white cells that come along with the blood infusion, and this sets the body system off. It's not unlike being vaccinated to the flu or measles, mumps, and rubella. You get an agent that is introduced to the body, and the body recognizes this as being foreign tissue. So the body develops an immune response, so your body can't be damaged by this. And the immune response is made by developing antibodies directed at these specific cell markers when a woman is pregnant sometimes the blood from the fetus can cross into the circulation of the mom and this can cause the mom to recognize those antigens in the baby as being foreign to her and she can develop antibodies and then in general someone who's had a previous transplant that has failed the body has recognized the different markers within the transplant and then has been basically immunized to that particular donor with all their genetic marking
1: how common is HLA sensitization among patients who are needing kidney transplantation?
2: Approximately on the waiting list for a deceased donor, approximately about 30% of the patients have a HLA sensitization greater than 30%. And about half of these are greater than 80% on the list. So this is a large number of individuals. There are approximately 100,000 people waiting for a kidney transplant. So you're looking at between twenty and 30,000 people on the list that are sensitized.
1: And why is sensitization among patients with kidney failure an issue for transplantation?
2: Sure. Well, if you look at the sensitization of patients on the waiting list and their time to transplant. The day we have some significant data from patients who were listed between 1999 and 2000. And if you look at patients during that time point that were listed, for people with less than 10% HLA sensitization, the average wait for a kidney transplant was about 1,270 days or three and a half years. If you look at the next group of patients between an HLA sensitization of 10 to 79 percent the average wait time was 1,597 days, or almost four and a half years. And for the patients who are most sensitized, greater than 80%, the average wait was over 4,000 days or 11 years. So the more sensitized a patient is, the longer they have to wait. And the reason why they have to wait longer is because they need a much more specific kidney that matches their own genetic identity compared to the regular population.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Our guest is Dr. William Goggins, Kidney Transplant Surgical Director at Indiana University Health. We're discussing desensitization for kidney transplant patients. Dr. Goggins, what are the current options for desensitization among these patients?
2: There are two basic processes for desensitization. One is an active process, and that is where you mechanically remove antibodies from the patient's body, and that's with plasmapheresis. While you're doing that, most people who have desensitization protocols use IVIG in a small dose. Additionally, there are passive desensitization processes where patients receive IVIG monthly and or with the Rituxan from that standpoint. Where are these processes used for? Well, in living donation, we tend to use more of the active process. We know we have a donor with a specific panel of antigens, and we have a recipient, and we know the levels of the antibodies that the recipient has towards that donor. And we can actively remove those antibodies with plasma and follow the decay of the antibodies till we get to a comfortable level where we feel as though we have a very high likelihood of getting through the transplant without a significant damage to the kidney. The passive desensitization is used more so for the deceased donor list where we don't have a donor ready and available and what we're trying to do is lower over time the recipient's antibody profile by giving them dosing of IVIG and or rituxan.
1: When you describe plasmapheresis, can you give us a little more detail about how that's actually done and why that's actually an active mechanism?
2: The plasmapheresis machine is almost identical to the dialysis machine, but they use different filters. And so the plasmapheresis machine is specifically taking out proteins out of the body. And by removing the proteins out of the body, you're removing the antibodies. They're the same size as the antibodies. And then after it's done, you replace them with albumin or other proteins so that you remove basically just the antibodies, some clotting factors, and you replace it with regular albumin. So the reason why it's active is because you are mechanically clearing the bloodstream of these antibodies.
1: And how often do you have to have that done?
2: It depends on the level of antibodies that you have in your system related to the donor that you're transplanting against. So the higher level of antibodies require more plasmapheresis. Lower levels of antibodies require less. In general, if you have a mild or a weak cross-match that you're removing a low level of antibody that's going to cause a problem, usually you do between two and three plasmapheresis every other day prior to transplant. If you have a higher level of antibody, sometimes that can require even two or three weeks of three times a week plasmapheresis until you get the antibody level down to an acceptable level.
1: Does one of these options take less or more time than the other to get to acceptable levels?
2: Well, you can imagine that the active process where you're you're mechanically removing the antibody is relatively quick. You can see a, a sharp reduction of the antibodies very quickly with each run of plasmapheresis. In the passive desensitization, you're using the body's mechanisms to downregulate antibody production and to decrease your antibody response. The data on the IVIG is it takes approximately 18 months for the peak effects of the passive desensitization to take place when patients will start to see a response and be able to be transplanted.
1: What are some of the risks or potential downsides to desensitization?
2: For plasmapheresis... There's not much in the way of downsides. It's usually very well tolerated, both active and passive desensitization. Sometimes with the fluid shifts or whatever, you can get some nausea. The most common side effect for IVIG is a headache. The largest impediment to implementing desensitization is the cost associated with this. And in order to go ahead with desensitization, we have to get approval from either the patient's insurance or from Medicare so that we can use these protocols with patients to help them get transplanted. And how much do they cost to do? It depends how much you have to plasma free them and go ahead with it. It's a wide variety, but you know the costs are recouped on the other side when they're transplanted and you're not paying for dialysis. It's hard to say exactly what it would be from that standpoint, but it can get rather expensive. That's one of the reasons why you have to get it approved ahead of time where they see a big bill and they're going to balk, and then you don't want the patient to have to see this, or your healthcare system would have to you know, find a way to help through that.
1: Once a patient has been desensitized or has completed this therapy, is there risk following the transplant any greater than if they had had not been sensitized to begin with?
2: What we have found with our patients is that they are at a higher risk for rejection early. Almost half of the patient's have some form of rejection, either with an antibody response, which we have to reverse with more plasmapheresis, or with the cellular rejection, which requires treatment with steroids initially. If you look at after the early period, once the patient and the kidney have made it through the early period of this early rejection and that's reversed, our survival is similar to non-sensitized living donors. And... We, at our institution, have a steroid-free protocol with our desensitized patients, and we compared our steroid-free desensitized patients to our living donor patients that were steroid-free that were not sensitized, and they had the same one-year patient in graft survival, and the kidneys behave similarly to patients that are not desensitized. So, it seems that if you can get them through the transplant process and get the kidney beyond the transplant and getting through the antibody response, the kidneys behave in a normal fashion, like they were not sensitized.
1: And is desensitization any different depending upon whether a patient is receiving a donor from a living or a deceased donor?
2: Usually, the patients that receive a kidney from a deceased donor are usually desensitized with IVIG and or rituxan at an earlier period. And many times, those patients, when they finally come to transplant, do not have any anti-donor antibody directed to that specific donor. The reason why is the strategy for passive desensitization is you're down regulating the body's response so you have less uh, antibodies present at the time of transplant and that opens you up to more donors and so by decreasing the antibodies within the system you have more potential donors that the patient can have and you're decreasing waiting time. For living donors mainly it depends on the type of cross and how high the levels of the antibodies are. If we're dealing with a low level of antibody we will sometimes just give IVIG alone prior to transplant plant. If we're dealing with a higher level of antibodies, then we actively desensitize with plasmapheresis and IVIG. For living donors, it depends on the specific antibody level itself, on which strategy we employ. Do you see any
1: changes or improvements in the way we do desensitization in the future?
2: One of the improvements that we've seen in the last few years is with the single-antigen HLA beads in the flow cytometry, we are getting much better data as to our antibody levels and also different types of antibodies and how they affect the body. And so we have been able to tailor our desensitization much easier due to different patient variabilities than we were previously Additionally, I think that if you can desensitize patients and eliminate the need for chronic long term steroids, I think that they do better just as patients that are not desensitized do better long term without steroids in relationship to weight gain, hypertension, nuance at diabetes, bone loss, and stuff like that. So I think that more we do, the better we get. And the better we get, the better we are at modifying immunosuppression so that we get better results with less overall immunosuppressive effects on the patients.
1: We've been talking with Dr. William Goggins about desensitization for kidney transplant patients. Dr. Goggins, thank you for being our
0: guest. You're very welcome. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, The Strength of a Leading National Transplant Center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.